Philippians chapter 1, page 980. We're just coming to the end of chapter 1. And I hope, guys, I'm, I'm enjoying it. I'm really learning what it is to be more like Jesus as we go through this book together. I hope you are too. And remember the key thing that, that the Apostle Paul is driving here through this book is that we would grow, is that we would change, is that we would conform more into the image of Jesus. And we talked already probably each week just how, how uh, fundamental the person of Jesus is to this letter which Paul wrote to this church in Philippi. I remember Paul's in chains, he's in prison, probably in Ephesus. And he's writing this church that he's visited already, who he loves dearly. His affections are so deep for, for these people, aren't they? And he, and he wants them to grow. He wants them to change. He wants them to, to push away the things of this world and to grow more into the likeness of Jesus. And we're going to see that more this morning. I'm going to read the passage in a minute. This last year has been... Um, has been interesting for a number of reasons like we've experienced a lot of new things or maybe some things have been brought closer to us that that we haven't really experienced much before and unfortunately one of the one of the darker things that we've experienced more than ever is death even this week it's been difficult to avoid death even in the media we think of captain tom moore what a legend and how he's just really uh, used his last uh, just time that he has on this earth to serve the, the good of the people of the UK. And it's right to honour him this week as he died. It's interesting for our generations that are represented in this world. It's kind of taken us a little bit by surprise. And, and death has come so much closer to us than it ever has before. Because, because really, we're not used to it. The generations that came before us, so probably from the 1960s beforehand, were really used to death. So the NHS really wasn't in place and, and didn't really bed in until after that. And so, so up to that point, if you were ill and sick, you probably wouldn't be taken to hospital. You'd, you'd die at home. And it was quite normal for families to, to experience and for young people to experience death in their home. If you think of, of the generations before us, like we are so blessed, folks, that we aren't having to go to war and experience death firsthand by relatives, or most of us at least, uh, experience death firsthand of relatives having to go into combat. We think of the advances in medicine and actually how our average age is creeping up each year because we're getting more advanced in being able to keep ourselves alive. So, so actually this year, death coming, coming closer has been, has been uncomfortable for us. Like we're not used to seeing it in the numbers and in the proximity that we've seen it. It is real. And maybe more than it ever has before this year, we've seen that death is real. It is ugly. It is brutal. Some of us heard this week on the Alpha course, it is the ultimate statistic. One out of one people will die. It is right that we hate death. But what if, what if, what if death wasn't tragic? What if it wasn't final? What if death actually was a door into, into life as it's supposed to be? Into life in all of its fullness. We're going to hear the Apostle Paul say in a few moments in this passage, to live is Christ, but to die is gain. To, get, to die is, is for our advantage. 
how can he say that? Actually, to say that almost sounds a little bit offensive. It sounds like we're, we're really denigrating life and really putting down life. So how does Paul come to that conclusion? If I went out on the streets and said that, I'm sure I would get some interesting comments. Uh, guys, I've got a message for you this morning. Dying is good. Like that probably wouldn't go down well. Maybe that's because, maybe that's because we, we treasure life wrongly. Maybe it's because we've got a wrong view of life. And that might be because you maybe think that this is all there is. Like, like we, we get to, to the end of our life and that's it. And we kind of drop into nothing. We have a humanist view of life that this is it. Or maybe we just love this life as it is. We've made a home here and we don't want to let it go. Like we treasure this life because it is wonderful and things are going well for us. But I want us to see this morning in God's word that the Bible holds out a better truth for us. That a life lived for Christ will lead to a life of eternal gain. That's what the Apostle Paul is going to say. A life lived for Christ now will lead to something better. A life of eternal gain. And that is only possible if we treasure Christ. And treasure him more than anything else. So let me read this passage for us. Philippians chapter 1. It's a longish passage but... It is a beautiful passage. There are some killer verses in here that you'll probably know already. Let me read it. We're starting at the second half of verse 18. The Apostle Paul says this. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed... But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labour for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account convinced of this i know that i will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in christ jesus because of my coming to you again only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of christ so that whether i come and see you or i'm absent i may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. For Paul, living and dying, is for the glory of Jesus. He wants to live for the glory of Jesus and he wants to die for the glory of Jesus. What about you? Do a little exercise here just for a moment. Fill in the blank. For me to live is... What is it? For me to die is... 
See, what we live for will ultimately dictate what we die for. So if you answer to that question, then for me to live is, is comfort, then for you to die is to be comfortless. Or for me to live is to, is to accumulate power. Well, for you to die, it's all going to go. So for you to die is to be powerless. For me to live is to, is to make a good life for my family and to provide for them. Well, well, if that is what you are living for, for you to die is to be without all of those things and to be without your family and being able to provide for them. The Apostle Paul, the answer to those questions is Jesus. For me to live is, is Jesus. It's for his glory. For me to die is Jesus. It's for his glory. And, and to live in that way is to live in a way which, which you can take something with you. You cannot take power with you. You cannot take control with you. You cannot take comfort or family or possessions with you. But if you are in Christ, for you to die is just to get more of that. first half of the passage the apostle paul shows us what that looks like for him what it looks like for him to live for christ and to have a perspective where dying is going to be for christ and remember this is all about for paul this is all about treasuring christ that's how he gets there by treasuring christ more than anything else and so four ways he shows us how he does that in this first half of the passage first in verse 18 he he finds that he's able to treasure christ by rejoicing in christ Yes, and I will rejoice. He said that twice now. He said that at the start of verse 18. And again, at the end of verse 18, yes, and I will rejoice in Christ. Now remember Paul's circumstances. He is in the most rejoice-less situation that we can think of. He's in a jail away from his friends being oppressed. He's He's sick. He needs people to come and help him and feed him and provide for him. He's being constrained. And yet he says, I will rejoice. How is he able to say that? Well, folks, because we rejoice in what we value, not in our circumstance. We rejoice in what we value. And what does Paul value? Christ. And he has Christ with him. And he sees Christ work. And what did we see last week? The gospel is advancing all around him. He sees Christ moving. He sees Christ working. He sees Christ growing in his own life. He sees Christ growing in the life of the Philippians. And so he says, I will rejoice because I value Christ. I treasure Christ more than anything else. Verse 19, he relies on Christ. Listen to this. I know that through your prayers and the help of the spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He's actually quoting directly from Job. Now, if you know the story of Job, you'll know there is a man there who, who had a hard life. Like Job is the poster boy for difficulty. Like he has everything taken away from him. But he comes to a position in, in chapter 13 of, of, of his book of, of Job. Where he is able to see that God is going to deliver him. He has a confidence that God is going to deliver him. And Paul quotes directly from Job chapter 13, verse 16. He's using a Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he says the same thing that Job says. He has a confidence that Jesus Christ will deliver him. And now we'll talk in a minute what it is that he's going to be delivered from. Because there's some debate. Is Paul talking about being delivered from jail? Does he think that he's going to get released from jail? Or is he thinking eternally? Is he thinking, well, I know that God's going to deliver me one day because I'll be with him in eternity. We'll talk about that in a minute, but, but what I want us to see here is that he has a confidence in Christ. 
In the midst of his difficult circumstance, he has a confidence in Christ. And his confidence, did you see what it was fueled by? The prayers of the Philippians. And the help of the Spirit. Folks, do not think for one moment that your prayers do not matter. What is it that keeps Paul going in this jail? It's the prayers of the the Philippians. And it's the fueling and his dependence on the Holy Spirit. Folks, that should really encourage us. I mean, who, who wants to treasure Christ more? I do. I'm sure most of us want to treasure Christ more. And a route to do that is to pray. To pray for each other. So here's just one application that we can go away, away with. Pray for each other. Pray that we would treasure Christ more. Pray that we would depend on the Spirit more. Pray that we would see Jesus more glorious than we see him now. Pray that for one another. That is what the Philippians pray for Paul And it works. He relies on Jesus. Next in verse 20 to 21, he represents Christ Jesus. He represents Christ and he represents Christ courageously. This deliverance that Paul's talking about. It could be that he's talking about getting released from jail. It could be that he's talking about an eternal deliverance. Ellie is on the move. But I think it's something else. If you look down at verse 20 and 21, you'll see a bit of a link here. Paul ties in his deliverance to this idea of shame. And, and, and it is shameful in terms of the circumstance that he's in. To be in prison, and particularly the way that you were imprisoned in those times, was shameful. But that isn't what he's talking about. Paul is saying this. I'll read it for us. It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honoured in my body. This is what Paul is saying. Not that he's ashamed of his chains, but he is saying, I will be ashamed if I don't honour Christ in my body. I will be ashamed if I don't stand up and speak the gospel. I will be ashamed if I don't, if I don't make my life count for the gospel. That is what Paul is saying. Like, like this has really challenged me this week. Paul is saying that he will experience shame if he does not live the gospel life. If he does not stand up and speak for Jesus. But he is. And so he knows that he will be delivered. He knows that he will not be ashamed. This has really challenged me because I think, and I think of just our recent experience with the Alpha Course. And me inviting some of my school friends. And I know that some of you shared the same experience with me. And I've been embarrassed to invite them. And I felt a little sense of shame inviting them. A little sense of shame. And I feel this whenever I share the gospel with anyone outside of the safety of this building and this family. I feel a little bit of shame when I do. I feel embarrassment. And Paul flips that on his head and says, no, it's the other way around for me. I would feel shame if I didn't. Wow. And let me just say this. Paul isn't some kind of super Christian here. It's not like he's got some extra power that we haven't got. Do you know what makes the difference with Paul? He treasures Christ. More than anything, he treasures Christ. And so he's able to say, do you know what? If I don't speak, if I don't live the gospel life, that is when I feel shame. Wow. Next thing we see in verse 22 to 26 is that he seeks to treasure Christ by serving Christ's community. Paul has this wrestle. He says, it's good for me to, to stay here, but, but going is going to be far better. 
both of these things are good, which one should I do, he says. He comes to the conclusion that he's got work to do. Verse 24, he says, guys, it's necessary that I stay. Like going is going to be far better for me. Going is going to be where I really see Christ in all of, of, of his fullness. Going is going to be a place where I'm not bound by chains anymore. Going is going to be a place where, where I'm able to see just the true glory and the true beauty of Jesus. But it is better for me and necessary for me to stay. What for? Why does he want to stay here? Well, if it was me answering the question, if I'm being honest, I'd probably say, I want to stay here just a little bit longer. Don't take me yet, Jesus, because I haven't experienced all of the the, the comfort and the enjoyment and the life experience that there is to have here. Or don't take me yet, Jesus, because because I, I just want to maybe make a little bit more money so we can go on more holidays and just have a little bit more comfort. Or don't take me yet, Jesus, because because I, I want to see my kids grow and then and they're all good things. I'm not saying that they're bad, but that isn't where Paul comes to. The reason he wants to stay, the reason it is necessary to stay is so that he can serve the church. It's so he can serve Christ's community. And it is not that he does not want to be with Jesus. He does. But right now, He wants the Philippian church. He wants more people to enjoy Jesus. He wants to enjoy Jesus for all eternity. But right now, he wants others to be able to enjoy him more too. Verse 25, the reason he wants to stay is so that they will grow. But but this isn't kind of, this isn't something that Paul doesn't get any return on. Paul receives joy as they grow. He stays so that the Philippian church will grow and in exchange he gets joy as he sees them grow. I want you to see something in Paul here. See his devotion towards Christ and his devotion towards Christ's church. So much so that he is willing to postpone eternal joy for them. That is his goal. Paul wants God to be glorified as more people enjoy him. I just have, imagine the Roman soldiers kind of sitting there. Like they are, Paul is a nightmare prisoner for them. Like his perspective on life is just so countercultural. And let me just back up to that key verse again. For me to live as Christ and to die as gain, just see Paul's perspective. Like he wants to be with Jesus. He sees that that is a good thing, but he also sees that it's good that he remains here. You can imagine this conversation with maybe the Roman soldiers who were keeping him imprisoned. Okay, Paul, we're going to kill you. We've had enough of you. You go. Well, that's great. I get to be with Jesus. Okay, well, we won't do that. Let's, let's keep him alive for a little bit longer. Well, that's great. I get to grow more of the Philippians. Okay, well, and, and he's just a nightmare. Like whatever they do, he's going to glorify Christ and he's going to pour into the church and Christ is going to be glorified. Folks, That is the kind of life that we should live and we can live if we treasure Christ more than anything else. For him to go is is great and he's looking forward to that day. But he also sees so much glory and so much to be done now. He wants to pour into the life of the Philippians. He wants to serve them. And in verse 22, he says, that is fruitful labor for me. 
now we need to be careful here. Like, like verse 21 is that coffee cup verse, isn't it? For me, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We love that verse. Many of us know that off by heart. But it is not enough just to say that. It's not enough for us just to say, yep, I'm in. For to me to live is Christ and die is gain. It's not enough. We actually have to live in that way. That's what Paul does. Fruitful labor, he says. He's going to stay and that's going to be fruitful labor. What does labor mean? Work. If we are going to say for, for to me to live as Christ, then we need to live in that way. We need to serve him. We need to serve his church. And actually, it's interesting. If Paul is indeed in Ephesus here, he eventually gets back to, to Philippi again. You'll see that in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 or Acts chapter 20, he eventually does get back there. If that's where he's imprisoned in Ephesus at the moment, he gets to be with them again. He gets to pour into them again. He gets to help them grow and receive the joy that he talks about here as he sees them growing more into the likeness of Christ. I want to say it again. Paul is only able to say these things because he treasures Christ more than anything else. He isn't a superhuman. He's an ordinary man filled with the Holy Spirit, relying on the prayers of the people with a vision for the glory of Jesus. That results in him being someone who might look radical to the Roman soldiers, but someone who can look just like you and I. Someone who lives to to usher in the glory of Christ and the joy of Christ's community. Let me read verse 27 as he closes off this first section. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or I am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul kind of gives us his example. In the first few verses, he says, this is what it looks like for me to treasure Christ. And now he moves on to say, okay, this is what it will look like for you. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel. Some of you at the bottom of your Bibles, if you've got an ESV, you'll see a little footnote. That little phrase there can be translated as this. Live as citizens in a manner worthy of the gospel. Philippians, live as citizens in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. And the gospel is central to this whole letter and it's central to to all this this argument that that Paul's building. And we're going to see the apex of it next week as Mark comes and preaches chapter 2, the start of chapter 2. We're going to see just a wonderful, beautiful picture of the gospel. Paul is saying right Right now in this verse, he says, let, let your life live as a citizen in a manner that is worthy of that. In a manner that reflects and lives in response to that. Live in a way that lives out of a response to the gospel. Folks, let me just, let me just help us there. And let, us, let me help us kind of treasure Christ a little bit more. Paul isn't just trying to, to beat up the Philippians and say, you need to live in this way because you should. Or you need to live in this way because I should. No, he says, the motivation for gospel living, the motivation for living in this way is the gospel. The motivation for treasuring Christ is to see Christ, is to see the gospel. It's to see that folks, every single one of us, our sin is destined for hell. Every single one of us, 
I've done nothing to, to earn our way to, to have an audience with God to, to maybe explain why, why we lived a certain way or to give excuses for why we lived a certain way. No, no, we are shut out of the presence of God because of our sin. But in his mercy, God sends his son. And Jesus, who is perfect, lives the perfect life, experiences all of the, 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 the difficulty, all of the struggle that it is to live as a human yet without sin. He's falsely tried. He is beaten. He is flogged. He is abused. He is spat upon. They, they push a crown of thorns onto his head. They put, it, put his hands and his nails onto a wooden cross, pierced. Not for his sins, but for ours. He suffers the cruelest death for you and I. And three days later, he rises again. And it isn't like he rises again and runs off as quick as he can. He's like, okay, we've done that. Let's get out of here. This place is a dump. No, he sticks around to give us life. He sticks around and gives us his spirit. So that right now, Christ is abiding in his people. He has not left us. He is with us. Fighting for us. And right now, Jesus is at the right hand father saying, I'm advocating for him. I'm advocating for her. She is my sister. He is my brother. They are sons and daughters, God. They're ours. They're our people. Let's pour out more love on them. Let's pour out mercy on them. Fresh mercy tomorrow morning. Let's give them grace when they stumble. Every day, advocating for us. Like that is the gospel, folks. And Paul says, right, be motivated by them. See Jesus more glorious than what you see him now. Treasure him more than anything else than what you treasure in this earth. And live in light of that. How do they do that? He says, stand firm in one spirit. Live for Christ and do that together. Stand firm in one spirit. He says, says, do it side by side. That's the picture that he's given. It's actually a military term that he's using. Remember last week when he he talked about advancing the gospel? Like he's using a military term there. If you think of, um, I don't know, like some of you you young guys who play um, war video games, like... Whatever it is, like you send out an advanced team. The army sends out an advanced team to kind of clear the way and make the way for, for the main team to come through. Like, are you with me? Am I talking a foreign language? Maybe I am. But that's what armies do. They, take, they send out kind of scouts to go ahead and clear the way. And, and Paul says that's what it is to advance the gospel, to go ahead, to clear the path. We don't save, God saves. But we go ahead and we, we prepare and we get ready for God to reap a harvest. He's talking military talking again. Now in verse 27. When he says, um, standing firm, he's talking about standing side by side. And the picture is of a military unit. Soldiers standing next to each other. Stand side by side, fighting with each other. Contending for each other. And what is it that we're fighting for? What is it that we're contending for? The gospel. Standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel that's what we fight for liberty church we stand side by side and we fight for the gospel we strive for the advancement of the gospel that's what we do together and we don't go off and just do this on our own we do that together it was wonderful hearing this week of one of our gospel communities last week just sitting down and plotting out together how they're going to do this 
and they came up with 17 different ways in which this year they want to engage in advancing the gospel in this community of Larkley and this year it's wonderful that is what Paul's talking about side by side the church coming together working together contending for the gospel together do not think that we're just single soldiers going out and trying to win this on our own we're not we're called to advance the gospel standing firm in one spirit striving together side by side and listen to that word strive what does that kind of conjure up strive like it makes me think of of resistance like we're, we're kind of pushing against something here and that is true as we seek to advance the gospel as we seek to take that glorious message of jesus salvation for all and any who will receive him as we do that we should be ready to receive opposition Paul says, go and speak fearlessly. Be fearless. Be prepared for conflict. Speak fearlessly. Folks, we should be prepared for conflict. But can I just say this? As we resist, our resistance should be cross-shaped. Like there are so many in the evangelical world today. We see it all over the United States, unfortunately, who think that the, the way we interpret this verse is to fly the flag of, of Christianity and to aggressively move against culture. And that isn't what Paul is talking about at all. He's talking about a cross-shaped resistance. A really powerful picture this week. I don't know whether you saw it, whether you've been tracking this story in Russia. The political opponent, opponent of Vladimir Putin, a guy called Alexei uh, Navalny, and he's been imprisoned. He's going to be going to a, um, a work camp for two years just for opposing the president. Now, that is wrong in itself. But such a powerful picture this week. He's standing in court and he's getting his sentence read out that he's going to go to prison for two years. Not for doing anything wrong, by the way, but for standing up for what he believes is right. And he's standing in his booth and his family are on the other side of the court and he just has a smile on his face and he's blowing kisses to his children and he's, he's doing that thing where he, on the glass and he's drawing hearts on the screen. It's actually quite funny when you look at it but, but so dark when you see what's going on. What you see it in, in that circumstance there is, is not a, an aggressive resistance It's actually a picture of the type of resistance that Christians should embody. Culture will press against us. The world will press against us. They don't want to hear that that they're sinners. None of us want to hear that we're sinners. And so they will push and they will resist. But the Bible says, as we resist, we do it in a way that mirrors the cross. And how did Jesus resist those who did wicked against them? How did Jesus resist those who were his enemies? He loved them. Love your enemies, Jesus. Pray for those who persecute you, Jesus. We will be rejected. Folks, can I encourage us to pray for those who reject us and to go again, to keep pursuing them in love, to keep seeking to share the good news of the gospel with them. Our opponents will come and as Paul ends out chapter one here, he encourages again for us to withstand them with 
with a fearless opposition. See, the gospel presents this devastating realisation. If this message that you are telling me is true, then I am not the God that I think I am. And I'm much worse than I thought I was. And that realisation will lead some people to salvation. But it will lead others to deeper opposition. The picture that Paul paints in these last couple of verses is that the life of a disciple will be a life of suffering. Paul says it's okay. God has got you. God has saved you. He is saving you. And he, he will save you in a day to come. And for those who oppose you, he says all that their opposition is doing is confirming their status as sinners who are condemned by God. And folks, can I say that should deepen our love for them. That should deepen our desperation for them to know the gospel and to see Jesus for who he is. A life lived for Christ, a life treasuring Christ will lead to opposition. That's okay. God has saved his people. We come back to that question. For me to live is how you answer that question then defines how you answer the rest of the question. For me to die is if your answer that to that question is Christ. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If if that is your answer, then in this life you will experience joy. As Jesus is glorified, as the gospel advances around you, and you will experience gain in death. As you get to see Christ in all of the fullness of his beauty. If that is not your answer, if in life you said, for me to live is anything else than Christ, then for death the answer for you is eternal loss. God has mapped out the way for us to maximize our joy here and his glory here. And it is to live for him. It is to live for Christ. Can I encourage us, folks, as we go away this week to take one of the application points that Paul encourages us towards to pray for one another. To treasure Christ above everything else is countercultural. It's not the way the world would have us live and it's also not the way our flesh would have us live. So can we pray for each other that we would be able to push through the lies of the world, the lies of our flesh, the lies of the devil and to see Jesus in his glory and to treasure him. Can we pray for one another? And as Paul does, can we depend on the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is able to break down the hardest of hearts He is, and he's able to push back the deepest of pride in our lives. So let us pray, dependent on the Spirit, that we will be a people who would treasure Christ above everything else, and that we would, in all genuineness and all truths, be able to say, yes, for to me to live is Christ, to die is gain.